Got it. Hello, everybody. We're live. Um, yeah, so what I was saying to you before, we're, we're live now. I just keep it as real and as, as true as what I do. And so here it is. I, of course, true to form, have always have, I always have technical difficulties. It's not that the, the technical is difficult. It's that I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> That's the, that's how that goes, you know. I, I just know how to talk. I don't know how to do all this other stuff. <laughs> that's why they got producers and stuff, right? The people behind the scenes. <laughs> Anybody want to be my producer, please, to my house. I mean, you know, COVID has messed it up. When I was at the, in the um, at the radio station, it was better. You know what I mean? They had they could yeah. do it. But now I'm on my own. I'm like, I'm out here in the weeds, girl. Out here in the weeds, okay? <laughs> but we're cool. We're okay. We're okay. We made it. We made it. So, um, yes, I'm. I'm sorry that we didn't get to talk beforehand, so that I could like. I want to be able to pronounce your name properly, and I'm upset <laughs> that I didn't get to have the time to do that. So, first of all, I want to say that I want you. To, I will. You pronounce. I know. I'll call you Ada. Thank you for that. But that makes me feel like I'm like, oh, I want to be able to say your name. So I'm go ahead. Please pronounce your name. We will, we will practice it together, just like I do with my students. Oh Lord, okay. <laughs> the first three okay. weeks of every semester, I practice saying my name, so by the end of the semester, they're able to say it flawlessly or close to flawlessly. Close to flawless. Um, you you allow I'm some of the. <laughs> You're very yeah, gracious. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> um, so it is um, Adriana on you and you. So, uh. So wait, say that again. Adore. Adore. Adore Nanya. Nanya. Mm-hmm. Adore Nanya. It's like actually spelled just the way you said it. Yeah, everything is like mad phonetic. It's just people get tripped up because there's so many vowels in there, so they're like, uh. That's what it. Yeah, but as soon as you said that, I'm like, oh, well, that's what it says. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, well, there it is. Adore Nanya. That's what it is. <laughs> okay. So I, I want to go, we're, we're here live. I have some people. Hello, everyone. Um, my guest is in, on the East Coast. Where are you exactly? Um, I'm in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. Oh, my nephew lives in Philadelphia. And Uh-oh. he's actually here right now. So, <laughs> you know, he's getting his, uh, he's working on his PhD from Temple in Africology. Oh, I'm like down the street from Temple. Are you? So y'all need to cross paths. Y'all need to cross paths. Yes. You, that would be really good. He, he and his girlfriend are here right now for the graduation, and um, we had his sister graduated. So uh, so anyway, okay. So I'm going to go ahead and just read your bio so people can understand uh, who you are, uh, academically anyway, and then we'll just get right into it. Um, so we have... Uh, second generation Nigerian American of the is it Igbo? Igbo. Igbo. So you don't say the J the G? No. So I G B O is the people. I B O is the language. Okay. The okay. See, I'm just learning everything today. Okay. Second generation Nigerian American from Igbo tribe is a faculty member in TCNJ's psychology department and runs the identity development across the African diaspora IDAD lab. I want you to tell me about that because I don't know what that really means. But, um, okay, she received her PhD and master's in education in psychology from University of Washington and her BS in human development with minors in education, sociology, and psychology 
from the University of California, Davis. Her research interest lies at the intersections of education, psychology, and sociology. Her scholarship investigates how racial and ethnic identity, immigration, and discrimination influence the academic trajectories of mental health of the black, of black Americans, African Caribbean, and Afro-Latinx uh, adolescents and young adults. Woo! I don't even know how you do all of that in one. Like I'm like, I'm sorry, you had how many minors? Oh, okay. Oh my God, sis. Um, <laughs> where do we start? Like I mean, you know, it's because it's everything is so lined up so beautifully. But as soon as I start, I read this, I was like, I have so much to talk about. Like I want to ask you so many questions. But what I want to first tell everyone, I met, I saw you or met you through my brother who does the podcast. Uh, power of ideas y'all should check it out he's in the site he, he does uh great conversations and he ties astrology into it it's dope right my little brother <laughs> so power of ideas shout out um and i was listening to a podcast you did with him and i wanted to jump in the conversation like 55 times so i was like please and he said he of course he was quick to say i tried to get y'all hooked up like six months ago, and I was like, I know, I know, but life happens, and yeah, now life happens, and everything happens at the right time, right? Like maybe it just wasn't the moment. It's just the moment. Clearly, it was yeah. not, and this is it. This is the timing for this. <laughs> so, um, so basically, I needed to have, uh, we needed to have this intervention, and now we saw we we were able to. Uh, I was able to see you, and we were able to hook up, and now I have you on my podcast, and I'm so grateful and thank you for you spending your time with us today so i mean literally i could just go through your bio and be like tell me more please <laughs> uh, right now um before we really get into it i'm gonna i just want to do a couple shout outs to yesterday's juneteenth celebration and everyone who was a part of it um i did a little speech and i got girl i got everybody to get up and do the wobble with me and the whole it was so much fun the whole crowd was doing the wobble it was super cute and then i did my little speech that was you know short and to the point um, and it was a good time. All the vendors were black, um, and we had some representation from Zimbabwe, and we it was really, really, really good. I mean, we the, the stage set up, the organization, everything, and they pulled it together in 10 days. So I'm going to give a shout-out, um, and I hope it continues on and on and on. Um, I also wanted to say and note that uh, I do have a Patreon and the people who are donating to me, thank you very much. I'm, it's, it's making a huge difference. Please continue. Please pass the word. It is, it is actually making a difference. I'm able to get some things done. And on that note, I also need help with tech. <laughs> yeah, if anybody has someone who wants to practice, you know, um, building a website, they want some help. I, I was able to purchase one, and now I'm trying to build it. And trust me, I am Googling like every step as I go. <laughs> I'm like, okay, what does that mean, Google? You know what I mean? It's a real slow process, y'all. So <laughs> if you want this interaction, this interactive um, uh, website help, <laughs> that, that would be nice. Okay. Um, also, I think that's I think that's it. I'm doing the anti-racism conversations. You can find more about that on my on my um, page on my Facebook page and how to contact me there. I think that's all the house stuff we're talking about. How are you, Ada? I'm doing all right. You doing all right? Yeah, I uh, got a workout in with my best friend. What? She has 
So we've been doing these virtual Peloton uh, workouts on Sundays. I just made applesauce for the first time from scratch. Hey! <laughs> she, she's like, I'm over here living my life. <laughs> yeah, if anything, I'm like getting more and more domesticated. So PhD and can take care of herself. Yeah, okay. See, I, you know the fact that you just said that. There's a conversation here going on right here. And I, I, I'm assuming it sounds, it feels like it's across the, the country where it's like we're trying to, people here are trying to remove police officers from the schools, you know, citing, citing trauma, uh, citing that like it's just a, a sense of terrorism in the schools for children of color and black folks. That's kind of the... I mean, it's not a sense of, it is. Yeah, and that's what, that I is mean, what they're... Technically, I can't say that without them citing a source that then claims that thing, but... It is. It is. It is. And that is what, and I think that's the whole thing is that we're having to, you know, to, to tie in those sources because as if it, as if there's not enough evidence. I mean, you know this from academia, how this has to go. To legitimize it, right? So until somebody else, a you know, board of old-ass white men yes. who say, based upon it being peer-reviewed by their particular point of view, this is legitimate. Um, as opposed to the fact that, like, this is a lived experience. And so how do we then account for lived experiences of individuals um, and say that qualifies enough to make some changes, right? Um, right. Honestly, that's, like, the ongoing conversation about just the experience of being black in America, right? Like, people don't believe it until there's, like, a critical mass of incidences for it to now then all of a sudden make sense as if though everybody else was crying wolf this entire time. This entire, like, not like the entire, like, years and years and hundreds years. And hundreds of years, yeah. And years of crying wolf. I was just talking about this, uh, where I was saying, you know, it's, it's incredible that nobody wants to talk about, nobody wants to talk about it until they see that dead body. You know, they have to see the dead body. We've been talking about this, this violence, we've been talking about this trauma, and they're like, well, I don't know. We have the dead body in front, they want to watch the videos over and over again, and then they still want to question the legitimacy of how he was killed or how they, she was killed to decide whether or not our trauma from it is legitimate. And that part yeah. is the part that's really frustrating when you're talking about the children in an academic setting and you're having police officers fully, in, I mean, they're not walking around in clothes. I mean, they got their, they have their, all of their equipment, 40 pounds of armor, walking around the schools with our children, as young as middle school, up into high school. Uh, as young as elementary school. Y'all have any elementary schools there? Depending on the elementary schools that kids are going to. Oh my gosh. We, no, that's, we don't have them in elementary schools here. But I can't even imagine. I mean, what the heck, what are you doing? It may not be an actual police officer, but it may be... I mean, when we think about the system of policing within schools, right? So actual physical officers in these buildings came about as a result of Columbine, right? Mm-hmm, right. So at, uh, you know, uh, school shooting didn't happen again. And unfortunately, has, has, have they ever stopped a school shooting since then? Girl, it looks like it's es- escalated. You know what I mean? Like, we have them regularly. Uh, it took COVID right. to be the first time since Columbine, to not have a school shooting. Right. Right? Right. Because kids are in school. So what's the, what is the, what is the, I mean, what's the real root reason for continuing to have them in the school? It's not working. It's not safer. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? It's the, it is the idea of safety, 
versus the actuality of it. And when you think about idea of safety, first of all, it's the idea of safety, right? So knowing that there's someone there that is supposed to keep folks safe. Mm -hmm. Um, But who is it that they're keeping safe is really the conversation. Right. Um, So is it to ensure the safety of these children? Is it to ensure the safety of the teachers? Is it to ensure the safety of administration? All of that is left up to debate depending on the context of the particular school that one is at, right? Right. Um, the level of policing that is at that type of school is also going to vary from it being a Title I school that's super under-resourced, mm-hmm. um, actual textbooks and classroom space and all of that, but you are pouring all this money into police officers um, or other types of, it may not even be police officers, it might be like um, just patrol mm-hmm. of some um, and all I can think about is like, well, that's resources that you're saying is for safety when these kids actually need resources such as the materials on which to learn from. I mean, they, I think the budget here in this little town, I think that it was, and I'm not, don't quote me, nobody quote me on this because I, I just saw this as I was scrolling through. It's like $400,000 that goes to the, the, in our school district. And that's one of our school districts that I believe only 4J, not necessarily the two other surrounding school districts, $400,000. The, re- the funding that we have going into school is half of that. That's going directly to the resources for the children. Uh, like, in split for the, what the, re- the resources that are going in for the police officers. It, it's double. Yeah. I mean, you know. So, and so for, with that, to me, I feel like, like when I'm talking about it, and I was looking through, like I said, your bio, and I was just thinking about, like you said, the, 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 the studies of this, the discrimination and influence, academic trajectories, and I was thinking about the trauma, you know, um, of we are, the, the idea and the trauma around having these people patrolling the hallways, right? And then we we're concerned about the, the graduation levels and the reading levels and the math levels of our black children and not really counting that intersection between the, literally the the not induced trauma, but we're like, I mean, yeah, it's the induced trauma they have at school all day long and going home and coming from home and all of that. And I'm thinking to myself, like, we're all really focused on the, the, we're really, really focused on the police officers. But I'm thinking to myself, like, even if we took the police officers out, right, um, how to address white supremacy in the schools, period, meaning that the academic, the academic rigor that we put, the, the, the actual curriculum that we're putting in, is it something that, I mean, I feel like it's hard to say we should do one thing before the other, because I think it all just needs to be scrapped, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, I'm all for burning the, the system down, right? But right. The, the, way, the only way the, for the system to actually burn down is if those who are in power, which are white folk, um, actually want to burn it, and or if they want to change it, they're also the only ones that can change it, right? Right. It's not just community, the most marginalized communities haven't been trying to in some way, shape, or form. Right. Um, so, yeah, police, the patrolling of and the policing of kids at schools is one part of a series of issues that we have with our schooling system. And I, I would say that, like, when we think about schooling from as young as preschool all the way through college, right? Right. That, like, let's call it the P through 20 pipeline, including those that are in grad school. Um, and so... What we see in schools is just uh, a microcosm of what's happening out in larger society. And folks think that it's easy to fix these things in school 
what's happening in the school setting is a result of all the things that are happening outside of that school setting. That's right? what I'm saying. Oh, if we we aren't trying, if we're trying to tackle something within the school setting, it's like a, I don't even want to say it's a band aid because it's just like. But it's a band aid. <laughs> it's like it's like you're putting like you're uh, trying to um, use a bucket to get out the like the flood that's happening, right? Right. All, all, like it's still like all this water is still just coming here, and you're just pouring it into another body of water. That's right. right. So it's not really solving any, it's not solving much, right? right? There's ways in which there's small changes that are occurring and it's very microscopic, right? It might be for a, a kid or a neighborhood, but it's not necessarily the system itself that's changing. This is just a manifestation of white supremacy in this particular context. We can translate the same thing to be in the, um, I don't know, the legal uh, setting, criminology, we can, uh, criminal justice system, we can say the same thing in the healthcare system, right? Like, all of these are just contexts yes. in which we're looking at the same problem, but folks are unable to see that it's the context and that it's the same problem in each of these places. Manifested just slightly differently, but it's the same exact problem. Right. And so that makes it really hard for change to come about, right? And so how do we, within the school system, try to make some of those changes? So part of it is reevaluating what are the metrics of safety that you're trying to ensue and for whom. Right. Right? Right. And how often, right? And how much of that money is going towards this idea of safety at a neglect of their actual purpose of going to school, which is to learn, right? Right. To get information. AKA indoctrination, but we'll talk about that. And, and that's, <laughs> uh, it's like, side uh, note. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in terms of what are the things that we could do, right, it is it is very difficult when we think about the reality of, uh, what is it, over 70%, I think it's like close to 77% on average, mm-hmm. of teacher force is white women, white middle class women, right? And so folks will constantly say, well, let's diversify the teaching force. Well, if you look at places in the Midwest and the South, they do tend to have a more diverse teaching force. Right. Ways in which our teacher education programs, as you know, higher education has become more of a capitalistic entity, mm-hmm. we move this idea of most folks could get a teaching certificate certification along with their bachelor's degree. Right. So you did an undergraduate degree right. for your and then you could just jump into teaching because you were learning how to be a teacher during that time. Mm-hmm. You only still see some of those programs in the Midwest and the South. Most of those along the coastal cities where we see more of white teachers, white female teachers, um, have this extra certification that folks have to do, which oftentimes is dealing more education, which means for some folks, more loans or loans that they That's can right how they're going to pay for um, and that it's also complicated by the fact that those who are able to be teachers with a low salary more often than not have a partner who's in a very lucrative career therefore it works for them yes right to be in ways that if you're thinking about communities of color how not everyone is partnered in in that way mm-hmm. or maybe not even if they were partnered, that their partner's in a really lucrative career that balances that out, right? Right. So we, we have about like all of these things that set up this particular condition for these types of folks to be in this particular type of setting. Right. right? To be teachers. Part of it is the teacher education programs. How are these teachers being taught? 
these are really short-term programs, right? Oftentimes a year or two mm-hmm. max. Mm-hmm. Uh, and focus on getting them to learn how to teach, but not always thinking about the system in which they're teaching. A good chunk of our time is going to title Sorry. Ourselves. Um, no, it's life. <laughs> um, so when we're thinking about the fact that our teacher education programs is actually equipping these teachers for the settings that they're actually going to be in. And by equipping, I mean, are they actually having them think about critically their own whiteness, their own positionality, and how that interacts with the biases that they're going to have as educators? Because everybody has biases. Mm-hmm. Let's not act like nobody has a bias. We right. have a bias, but some of us are better at checking those biases or checking in with those biases, having a system in place that ensures that we're checking those biases, right? Mm-hmm. And the fact that a lot of our teacher education programs don't necessarily have conversations about whiteness. Right. right? They're about them working with diverse kids. And Thank you. Sometimes it's also from a deficit framework, and it's not thinking about what is it that these kids are bringing in with them that's additive, that is actually contributing to their education too, and that we have to think differently about right. the way most white people think about success in education is one way, and different communities think about success in education in a different way. Right. That our system doesn't necessarily allow for that diversity in defined success, also tied back to this thing of testing. Right. right? So like all of this stuff, like it's it's complicated. It is. And that's not an excuse. No, it's not an excuse. And the thing is, and I I I find it hard for me to even really say that it's I mean, I, it is complicated because it's just yeah, so it's so it's it's so right. It's so ingrained. It's it's multifaceted. It goes further back than, than like you said, the band-aid of like, how do we do this with this school? It goes back to the creation of how this was set up in the very, very first place. Like it has to go. Education was set up for young white men, children of slave, like slave owners' children. That's right. Middle class men. That's that was who was educated first and foremost. Compulsory education, as we know it, which is what we have now, uh, came about like in the 1900s as a way to ensure that like kids were no longer working in factories. Right. 1900s? Try and decrease. Decrease. It's not that kids still weren't working in factories, but to try and decrease the number of kids that were working in factories and also to get all of these immigrant children from Eastern European countries to become and understand the American way. Right? Right. So they're Protestant, pseudo-Christian way. And here comes the indoctrination. Yeah. Right. So... So that so for me, I feel like it, it's another it's another idea of not actually understanding how the system works. When people are um, really really passionate and really wanting to help, and then they're going after something like these very surface. Sorry, my grandson's in the background. Like he's um, so very surface. It's like um, so these very surface uh, um, antidotal kind of. Um, ways of, of feeling like you're fixing something when the truth is that we really got to really understand how the system has worked so when we're putting all this energy out that we don't wonder why it didn't work five years from now why the system still is doing what it does five years now because the truth of it is that we actually have to um, we got to understand how the system works so as we're, as we're looking at taking police out of the school system or out of the schools entirely 
uh, and I'm talking about like looking at the curriculum, we have to go even further back to look at the policy. We have to look further back to the to the um, the direction in which they're they're even funneling in, in the school the no students. No child left behind. Yeah. President, uh, GWs or W. Yeah. <laughs> policy really, for all intents and purposes, messed up, greatly messed up the education system, right? So this is where you have testing becoming something that is a requirement. Oh, God. Uh, oh, man. That's how schools are getting their funding. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, and the implementation of that really shifted what we know of education. It's not to say that it was perfect beforehand, because it wasn't, and there's right. been all these policies that all of our policies, our educational policies, are an iteration of the first policy, which is called the NDEA, um, that came about as a result of uh, the Russians getting Sputnik up in the air. Uh-huh. Uh, like, our very first educational, like, really mandated, federally mandated educational policy of 1958. Um, every other educational policy is an iteration of that, with a slight modification or a change. From 1958? From 1958, if you were, there's a lot of histor- historians of education who have like looked at like you know the historical ontology of our educational policies. They're really not different. Every president thinks that they're creating something different. It's all the same thing with a different name and more restrictions. Wow. Right? Uh, more oversight, right? Right. So there, there really is no. All of it is pretty formulaic, um, and so when we think about the ways in which No Child Left Behind really skirted and changed things in terms of um, schools funding was now being tied to their test scores. Right. So schools were getting funding beforehand. Testing did exist, right? Mm-hmm. But now the pressure that was being placed on testing. And so we see this shift in what was happening, especially in K-12, the public K-12 settings, in which there is this teaching kids how to take a test, right? right? Mm-hmm. So come like February, March, April, when testing would happen around April, you yeah. have curriculum is shifting for like who knows how many hours each day or each week that kids are being taught how to take this particular test. Right. Right. Um, and so that is taking away from what is the actual purpose of this test. Right. Right. The purpose is to see, okay, did they get an understanding of the content that we would want them to have at this particular um, grade level? We're testing them in April when they haven't gone through the whole academic year. Right. We also have a baseline into understanding what was it that they knew at the beginning of this academic year and then seeing what was their growth at the end of this academic year after learning this stuff. Right. right? It would be a very different test. I believe Illinois is the only state that does that. Wow. Um, I, when I last checked a few years ago, I don't know if they're, if they're still implementing that, but they were the only state that was doing a pre and a post test. So kids were taking the test, I believe, in September, and then again sometime in, like, late April, early May. Actually show some academic growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, But testing is, like, a billion-dollar industry in of itself, right? Like, uh, all the the levels. (laughs) You're like, like, yeah, like, it it just infuriates me um, because it's ultimately, right, like, uh, what, what, um, the wire, yeah. It's money. The moment you start to follow the money, you better understand why the system is operating in the way that it is. Period. Right? Yes. Yes. Like you get all of the answers when you follow the money. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think I you know, I don't like to be the bearer of bad news and shit, but like 
I don't, because I'm an optimist. You know, it's funny because you know my brother, like Ian, he's a, I, I tell him that he's a pessimist, and he's like, I'm he's not. A realist. That's what he says. He's a realist. He says he's a realist. We're both realists. Okay. I think. Pessimists always call realists, uh, sorry, optimists always call realists. Pessimists? <laughs> <laughs> I always call us realist pessimists. Okay, well, I, I'm like. You know, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, I think I am an optimist. I mean, look, not to bring astrology in, because he and I get into that once a month on his podcast, but it's all up in my chart. Like, I'm an idealistic person, you know what I mean? I think of it in a very... But I think that's how I get through most of my traumas. Like, I'm like, I always see a silver lining. Even in the worst moments, I'm like, there's a silver lining to this, you know what I mean? And it gets me through, okay? So, <laughs> but when I look at this, and I look at... um. And, I, and I'm looking, I say look at this, I'm just looking at my my community and I, the nation as a whole, but I'm looking at my community because our community is built on a lot of um, uh, progressive liberal do-gooders who feel like they're... Yes, absolute white folks that feel like they're doing work because they're spending a lot of energy using the words and and posturing the posture but not actually understanding the connection they miss it almost every single time so it's like they didn't actually sit down with people to ask them what it is that they needed right so for example the biggest example of this is teach for america Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you just decided to create this entity and say that you know what these schools need more so than the people that are there and you're getting just some college undergrads recently graduated folks who have no them in the pit. In the night yes. And giving them a five-week training to go teach our most vulnerable student populations. Right. And at places that have the highest turnover, turn like turnover of teachers. Right? Yeah. So most of you're saying one, maybe two or three years. Yeah. Yeah. So why would we want to pit an entity of inexperienced folks to teach the kids that need the best teachers, and say then you're going to give them the most inexperienced folks who are least likely to stay. And on top of that, you've spent this money, and then what you're going to say is when it's not... They're for the community and don't know these people. That's right. And they're, they're shipped in from all over the country, right? And then you're going to say, well, we tried. It was clearly the students. It was clearly the situation. You know, it was clearly where we were that is the issue. It's not that the system that they put in place to make the... It's really about, again, the money... And a quick, a quick band-aid to the assessment of like, oh, we need more teachers. Okay, so let's put, throw, like you said, throw in a bunch of 22-year-olds who just graduated college. Right? <laughs> and so, so that way it's a nice booster for them when they're applying for med school or law school. That's, that's right. So, so we then have, just in that one, one, just in that one effort, we have victimized our students again. We have utilized them at, and we have put them in a position of basic fodder. And at no point was this about their betterment, their life, their education, or at any point. And I think that people really got it, like exactly what you said. You got to see what is it that we actually need. You know what? And it's it's one thing to make it sound good. It's one thing to make it look good. It's one thing to paint over all the bumps and the lumps. But the bumps and the lumps are still there. And I'm and I'm looking at like the I the it, my experience growing up here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, as being the black girl in school, I can say that as when I was 15, I moved away. I came back when I was 30. So I had 15 years here, 15 years back, and now I've been back like 12, 13 years. So it's like, you know, these quarterly things going on. But 
my dad is an educator. Uh, he's a philosopher. And then I got my mother, who's educated. They're both educated, college degrees. I got my mother, who is a nurse. Very, very smart. Um, geology. She studies all kinds of things. Then I've got, you know, we've got Afrocentricity in, my, in the household. We've got Africology. We've got all these things going on in my house. And then I come outside my house, and I've got, you know, progressive, liberal, white, suburbia, in a way, type of, you know, all my friends are white, all my friends are, are that. You know, I can, I can, you know, are that. Just put it all together, right? Yeah. Um, so I think about my experience in school, and I remember when I moved to Texas. And I remember being in Texas, and I went to a, I went to one of the good schools, right? I went to a affluent neighborhood with with you know, I thought. Don't talk about that. Right. Good schools. Okay. Right. Right. Good school meaning we had funding. Okay. We had money. That's what the good school meant. It was a, a school. And white people. And white people. It was a school for languages. So it was like white Latin and, and white and Latin really is what it was. And we had black folks there. It was more black folks than I had ever gone to school with, but it was like after I, I was there for a while, I realized that it wasn't a black school. That's not Texas. Texas. No, right? And people were like, oh, you thought you went to a black school? That's cute, that's cute. Bel Air is not a black school. <laughs> so, so, um, so anyway, so my experience when I went there, I, and I, was, I remember being in my classrooms here and I remember just looking, just very simply, looking at the building. I remember my classrooms here had big, win- like we had windows, and we would have classes outside sometimes, and we would do like outdoor school where we would have class for like a week out in the, in the nature, and like we would learn about all this stuff. And yeah, and then we would go like, I, we had languages, I had all the teachers had master's degrees. You cannot teach here unless you have a master's degree in Oregon. So. We had no, never what I, I never had a black teacher and I never had a male teacher. Like as I was coming through, it was like when I was here. So yeah, like you were saying, the white middle-aged woman type, you know. Uh, and I had an Asian teacher, younger. Um, and so anyway, uh, actually, it's not true. I did have a male teacher, but he was white, male. Uh, what grade was I in? I had to be like fourth grade, something very young. Anyway, all I'm trying to say is when I went to Texas. I remember I, we did have, I had Latin teachers, I had black teachers. Our classroom did not have windows. I remember walking into the classroom and being like, it's like a box. Like, we, you know, we had like, it, and it was like brick walls. You know what I mean? And, and I remember the first time ever I had, I was in a classroom that I had to sit, um, and there was one teacher in like, 42 kids. It was right when the when that sizing of classes was starting to change, and they had to start doing these adjustments. And I remember. I mean, I was in school in California where my class on average is were 45 to 52. So yes. We were, but the thing about it is, is that we, I don't know how it went for you, but I remember kids having. We never got more seats. Kids had to sit on the the heaters in the back. Uh, I mean, that, sometimes they pull in extra chairs, but they didn't. They weren't attached to the desk. But you couldn't fit them all in either, like right. <laughs> yes, and I just remember. I just re- I remember being at the school, and I loved being at the school in Texas. I felt better there than I did ever here. Um, but it was like that. I remember not having, uh, not not having. I had all my textbooks. I remember not having enough space in the classrooms. 
I remember the class, we never went out of the school. Like, we never left the school. The school, the uh, we definitely had police, and we definitely had metal detectors. You know what I mean? And this is, and so this is coming from me understanding this is not about like 10 years later. You know, this was like I went from maybe a two, three year gap between here and there. Um, so it was just the tr the idea of what was what was actually happening in the school. And it, 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 all of it as an adult, I can look back, all of it came down to who had the money. It was, like, you know, the kids, and what was really funny is I remember the kids here, we were not college we were not talking about college. None of the kids here were talking about their futures. They were talking about gap years and traveling to Europe and, and volunteering, being you know, white saviors in, in uh, you know, Ethiopia. That's what they were talking about here. When I, went to, when I went down south and in Houston, everyone knew where they were going to school. Everyone was talking about academia, reading, write, math, everyone was focused on their going, what they needed to do to get that scholarship to get to school. It was a completely different, now we had all the resources up here and what nobody even worried about going to college, right? Because <laughs> they had that privilege of like, I, you know, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to go to Europe, take a couple gap years, my parents got it, you know? And then I come down south, they don't have the resources, even though, you know, we had, they had better resources at Bel Air than other places. And everyone was there was fighting for the first, to be the first in line for the, the top education you could get. And so it was just the, 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 in my, and when I look at this, it's just like, I, if you can't take the privilege out of this, and understand what the only reason that we're actually having this conversation and and not this conversation but the conversation here that we're having around the schools and taking the police and and pretending like that would that will solve the situation it's not this that's not actually at all what the issue is here that solves one aspect of physical violence it doesn't solve all the other forms of violence that these kids are still experiencing in their schooling system i don't even know if that's the only thing physical violence i don't even I don't know the last the time. Aspect of physical violence, right? It's not going to stop sex. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's not necessarily stopping the fact that like these kids are still at schools that are under resourced with teachers who may have the best intentions but have um, terrible, delicious, like very negative impacts on these kids because they're unaware of the backgrounds of these children. Right? That they're making pejorative statements. That they uh, stereotype and essentialize these kids, that there might be one or two that they think are an exception and therefore they tokenize them yeah. and that that is just as traumatic for those students as yes. well. So like, let alone that like, what happens between the students is again, a manifestation of like intergroup dynamics that is a result of narratives that white supremacy has kind of constructed to ensure that other that minoritized groups fight against each other for a small piece of a pie, thinking that that's, they can't see the whole pie and that they've made it seem as if they were fighting over this one slice um, or Ooh. five or six of us. So there's so many, um, it take, it's going to take, of course, it's going to take a lot to, and I'm not going to say fix the system because the system isn't broken. The system it's is doing exactly what it's set up to do. Exactly what it's set up to do. Set up to do. The thing is, these systems weren't made for people like us, right? And therefore, the system, as much as we would like it to change, 
has continuously shown over and over again it is not willing to change for people like us. Right. And so people then, okay, how do I make changes at the policy level that's going to impact what's potentially happening at a school? We know that policy is only one part. It's not all about, like, the actual, like, uh, implementation of it, right? So, like, Brown v. Board, 1952. Right. Uh, uh, one of the last schools to desegregate, what was it, in Georgia or Alabama in, like, 2010 or something had their first... Uh, no, like 20, 2012 or something, had their first, like, integrated prom or something like that. 2012? You have Brown v. Board, 1952. And and that's Brown v. Board 2, because they had to have a second Brown v. Board in 1954. Right. Because folks weren't actually desegregating, as it had told them to do. And they added this very problematic line, which resulted in this very slow process of integration, which was in due process. In due process. Right? So, mm-hmm. in due, like, in due process, in due time, people would have to, it didn't give a definitive timeline for that. So you have places that were immediately integrating to mm-hmm. places that integrate until, like, well into the 90s and 2000s in some places across this country, right? Um, because that's still, once they can get to it. Um, and that when we're thinking about this aspect of integration, which, again, is you're for, they were forcing typically black kids and other minoritized kids into these white spaces and not bringing white kids into the other spaces. Right. Digital integration. That when we think about this idea of this good school versus bad school, good district versus bad district, mm-hmm. a school choice versus neighborhood school, that this is also leading back to the actual segregation of our schooling system yet again. Right. Um, That this notion of a good or a bad school, good or a bad district, that is the wording that white folk use, Mm -hmm. right? It means that it's too many colored folk in that particular school, in that particular district. Mm -hmm. Um, That at the end of the day, like I I have this conversation with a lot of my friends who have um, kids, I actually like had conversation yesterday with another friend um is this this notion that like for many of us we went to public school and it was i right like, the best but like clearly i quote unquote made it i have a phd i'm teaching right, right. Got that, that was necessary and there's ways in which our parents have supplemented our education when we think about the fact that many of us are in a place that's very different from where our parents were, right. that regardless of the type of school that our kid is going to go to, we would be able to supplement whatever they're getting at that school. Right. So this notion of a good school versus a bad school is your idea of what proximity to whiteness you want these kids to be at. Mm. And I'm not going to lie. Yes, there are bad schools, and that's a byproduct of the fact that they're under-resourced. Right. Right? They're being neglected. Right. That they're being provided the resources that are necessary for this population to succeed. And it's on purpose because we're a society that's hierarchical. Right. Some are supposed to succeed, some people are supposed to be average, and some people are not supposed to succeed at all. Mm-hmm. And our districts do that hierarchical nature. This idea of a good school and a bad school, this idea of school choice, which is a problematic policy mm-hmm. because it means is school choice for the affluent or white parents who are able to drive their kids to whatever school that they want. Right. Automatically alienating parents who are unable to provide that kind of transportation for their children. Right. And we know, proportionally, that this is where something like race and class 
and I'm going to say immigration status. Yes, do. Comes, it comes into issue, right? Yes. Who access for school choice? Right, right. Who actually gets that? That's interesting that you say that. It's interesting that you talk about that because um, when what you just said to me, I was like, that that is a what you just said that stuck out to me. I mean, all of it, all of it, yes. But the idea that you're saying the, in the proximity to whiteness, you're the the busing that people have done that to 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 integrate school children from one part of uh, of the city to the next. It's the black kids coming over to the white schools. We're not integrating the white kids over to the black schools. Seattle tried to do that, and that's how it ended up becoming such a hot mess. What's <laughs> the name of that case? It, all, it went all the way to fucking um, Supreme Court. Sorry. No, you're uh, fine. Supreme Court in like... Um, I... uh, in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. It was like the, the mid to late 2000s. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, Seattle Public Schools was busing kids to different schools to increase integration. Right. Because Seattle is very racially segregated. Yeah. The way it's divided up. Um, and the push was to then start busing white kids to go to other places too. Mm-hmm. These white weren't having it. They said it was against their right or some shit, something like that. Right. Ended up, it was like a violation of their 14th Amendment. The Fourteenth Amendment, which was created as a result of slavery, yeah, yeah, communities of color, that white folks were able to then use that as their as the sticking point, and therefore it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, was completely nullified. Wow, Seattle in that way, it wasn't. It went back to being super segregated once again, and you'll see that that like when we're thinking about our public school system, folks are always so focused on the fact that like there's these really white schools and then the schools that have a lot of kids of color. There's the other conversation that folks aren't having that a lot of white folks are actually taking their kids out of the public school system altogether. All the homeschooling. Public funding. Yes. Not even homeschooling. They're putting them uh, private school. Uh-huh. It's privatizing a public good. So you're taking public good funds from public school for your private experience. Mm-hmm. Charter school. And private schooling. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So, again, Seattle being this really unique case, um, also because like I went to school there, so being in that space to be able to interrogate this stuff. Yeah. Not only did you see that there is this segregation that's occurring in schools again, right? But you also see there's a mass exodus of white families and white kids from the public schooling system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the, again, what we're saying, follow the money. This is another example of how you're seeing this money is being redistributed in certain ways, right? So when we think about like someplace like New Orleans, post Hurricane Katrina, that TFA basically runs a large majority of the schools that are there. Mm-hmm. Most of those schools are charter schools. Right. Right. The same thing happened in DC. The same thing happened in Chicago. Right. And that that's the forget that under Obama's tenure. 33 public schools closed in in Chicago. 33? 33 schools, public schools shut down in Chicago in 2014. Wow. Right? Yeah. When we're thinking about who's having access, where this money is being redistributed for who, and in what context, with the proliferation of charter schools. Charter schools are not all bad. I'm going to say that. I know there's a lot of folks that are vehemently against charter schools. 
charter schools work if it's for the people by the people. Mm. Charter schools are supposed to be foodies. Right. But charter schools being created for a particular entity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For an entity to basically circumvent the traditional public school sector for their own private needs. Right. That's the problem. Right. So I'm trying to think of like, I'm trying to think of uh, of charter schools here, the alternative schools, the funding that goes through. Um, when you, when I was listening to what you're saying, that mass exodus of white folks to these public schools, I mean, from public schools into charters and or private schools. Um, now, wouldn't would that be? I mean, wouldn't that still be kind of a a, a manifestation of following the money? I mean, because if they if the mass exodus yeah. happened, so was the funds. Yeah, because it means less funding is going to traditional public schools. Right. 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 And it is following the money and the redistribution of quote unquote wealth yet again. Right. Right. So. So now it's interesting. My mother um, was is eighty. She'll be eighty this year, and she was born in uh, you know uh, nineteen forty. I remember her actually saying that she felt. When they wanted to do the when they wanted to do segregation, and she w- was like almost fifteen, you know what I mean? And she didn't. See, they she was like I don't was not. There was no excitement about that in the black community, you know, uh, for her. Why she, would there be? Right, I, exactly, and that's the, the narrative. In which the black community was actually thriving. Thriving. Before all of this, so like it. Yeah. It's see, sorry, because this. They were still being not entirely resourced equivalent to white schools. Right. Had a bunch of black teachers teaching black kids and all of this stuff that created a sense of... Well, empowerment. They, it was love. Empowerment that, that got decimated, right? So, like, the, a big conversation piece that's always missing when we're talking about integration is that it was moving these kids to these white schools and these black teachers no longer having jobs. That, too. On top of that, black teachers weren't moved into these places. Right, right, and there's no, there was, there was no, there literally was no plan when the child, these these children of color and black children were moved to these affluent to 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 actually uh, assist in adjustment to this to this completely whitewashed world. There was no plan for that. It was a, it was built to fail immediately. It was. It's it, never. It was built to do exactly what it's what it had done, and this is the same thing that we experience when kids, when kids, of, when black and brown kids end up going to really affluent, highly resourced schools, and they're one of few. Yeah. They're experiencing. There's some research that's demonstrating that there's ways in which they're experiencing the same kind of trauma, unknowingly or knowingly, as those that were at the first levels of trying to integrate schools into systems. Right. Right. That like. Ongoing, all these spaces purposefully, yet again, weren't made for us, and they don't want to change for us. Right, right, and I and I think that um, it's it's blaringly clear. It's blatantly obvious. It's it's like I don't know. It's it's it comes to me as like that savior. Uh, and I and I'm always in the context of where I live, obviously. But that savior idea, that savior complex, that I the that white savior complex? yeah, the white savior complex. Because I mean, like what 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 we're saying, black children being taught by black teachers that were well resourced, that weren't well resourced, still 
produced excellence. I mean, still produced highly qualified, highly um, capable uh, graduates from the school. So my idea is that I don't understand why it's so hard. I don't understand why it's so hard to just understand that this shit is racist. Like, what? <laughs> why can't people just say it? We have to also think about, like, there's places in the South that are predominantly black, right? They have black teachers, administrators, yes. all of this. Schooling itself is, again, deep-seated in white supremacy. Yes. You still have them, those types of schools, there's research that has demonstrated they still have the same rates of suspension, detention, expulsion as if those these kids were going to white schools, right? Because the system itself is deep-seated in this particular ideology. So there's ways in which that ideology may have not necessarily existed in the same way before. Yeah. But now that you had this complete shift in the 50s of our American schooling system, the U.S. schooling system, because America is both, you know, constitutes of both Canada, right. Mexico, Central America, and South America. Uh, yeah. So the U.S. schooling system, um, that... We have to rethink about this idea of like the ways in which white supremacist ideologies has manifested within our schooling system, right? And that therefore, just by saying you have representation of teachers to students, that helps part of the way, but it's not all the way because you still have these teachers who are abiding by this system. Yes, who are teaching this curriculum, who are who are who are teaching this curriculum. Yeah. Who also feel right? Like I think of like basically like some that operate like Uncle Ruckus. Right. No. Yeah. Um, so like there's it's it's complicated mm-hmm. everything is complicated how do we interrogate all of these things how do we ensure that we can have these conversations these not siloed conversations about all these individual parts right there's groups that need to work on each individual component of this complex system and there needs to be a space for folks to come together to talk about how do these things interlink with one another because if we're trying to make a change here let's say we're trying to change um you know um diversifying teacher education programs and getting more black and brown folks what does that then have a ripple effect in what's happening in the classroom in terms of discipline um and expulsion rates what does that mean in terms of changes to the curriculum if at all right right that every single change or decision that's made elsewhere has an effect on the entire system mm-hmm. and folks very difficult time seeing that I think, though, like with what you were just saying about the indoctrination piece of that, the curriculum that is also whitewashed and based in white supremacy, when you're having black teachers teaching this, it's like that rocket, like, you know, that idea that there's, there, there's still, it's still pushing the same narrative, right? And so I, I feel like even creating that, putting the, the brown face at the front of the classroom, is this, it's, it's problematic in the same way of, of just, you know, it's, it's that performative Look what we've got. We got we've got this many black teachers, so that so I, we're all good. But the idea is that we got to understand that it's it is in the curriculum itself. It's in the indoctrination of white supremacy as the bottom line of our education system, and then we don't even have a choice because then the resources and the funding we don't. I mean, ha- having been pillaged from the from uh of the funding streams and not being where the money is being, uh, and not having the resources even within the community. To support the schools, I can't even I can't even tell you how much money is put into the schools here that uh, that are literally three miles apart. Where we have the Latinos on one side, and we have 
and we and we don't have Latinos on one side. Like I'm telling you, like I'm talking about the difference between like 45 people and like 35 people. You know, what I'm versus all the other white people who are involved, right? And exactly with what you're saying, where the white people will focus on the school that's in the the fluent most neighborhood, but they're actually also putting big money into that school. Two miles down the road, you've got parents who are working class and or, uh, uh, you know, immigrant status that, that may not be able to work uh, or, you know, having to work in alternative ways. A PTA, they don't even have, I mean. Uh, rubbing elbows with Fortune 500 company owners, no. right? Like, when we think about this um, disparity that persists, like, one thing that, because um, I have friends who do, like, economics of education, like, what would it mean to pay teachers legitimately fair wages? That would change the force immediately. Right. Yeah. In some ways. What would it mean to um, ensure that no one school is over resourced more than another? Therefore, that if even if school A was able to fundraise $600,000 every year, that that money gets distributed across other schools in the district. That's right. 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 So, how do we actually take this idea of dismantling power structures that exist within the system to ensure the success of all within a district? Right. That is the framing that some folks do have, right? Um, and that it's hard to try and figure out how to implement that. Um, that isn't it just a reallocation of funding? It's not hard. It's not hard. Is that if folks actually wanted to ensure the success? In how they're how how the U.S. has defined success. Right. If they want to ensure the success of all of these youth, they would do these things, but they don't want to. Period. I mean, this is a reallocation of funding. Honestly, like it's. I mean, that's like the one of the base. But I, I still, I'm still in the indoctrination piece of it. Like I'm still thinking about you know when my if my. As, like I explained, I went to school here and I can go back to school. I mean, my children go to school here and they say the same problems, have the same issues, have the same conversations that I have, that I had when I was going to school here. I'm 43 years old. You know what I mean? My children are, you know, much younger. <laughs> we should have had some shift in this. The indoctrination has not changed. And I don't understand. We have. We have. There's moments. So, for example, right, uh, what was it? Uh, Arizona had ethnic studies in K through 12. They had it in high school. And they found that uh, for Mexican uh, American studies, uh -huh. uh, there's a really great daily, um, uh, daily show piece on this um, from a few years ago. Okay. But it, uh, I forgot what was this, was it AB17 something that cut the Mexican American studies program in high school. Because mm -hmm. the Mexican American students who were going through this program had really, they were having great graduation rates. They were having great college entrance and completion rates. Therefore, school districts, educational policy folks that were largely white, that felt threatened by that, cut this program. They felt threatened by it, so they cut the program. Felt threatened by it and cut the program. And therefore, because you had these Mexican-American kids learning about how, you know, we're on their land. Yes. Right? was Mexico, right. still is Mexico, yeah. um, and that it's the ways in which history was being taught in K-12 from the, you know, perspective of um, the United States always winning, right? right. Uh, 
who are these really important white male figures, what are these important wars that they fought and won. Whereas there's this whole other narrative that kids are learning in ethnic studies, right? Mm-hmm. Ethnic studies textualizes, complicates this understanding. Yes. Of history, right? Well, it's right in the face of white supremacy. Yeah, yeah. It the folks, right? So when you're able to have them think in this different way, you're improving critical thinking, you're improving right. writing, right? All of these other metrics of success right. as deemed by the U.S. educational system. And so that program was cut because they felt as if though it wasn't accessible, it wasn't something that everybody could have access to. Right. Everybody should have access to it, right? Or actually, at the end of the day, white kids do need to learn about this too because whiteness shouldn't always be centered. We live in a world in which it's always going to be centered and that's the unfortunate reality. But like, their perspective isn't the only perspective. It isn't the golden, it's not the holy grail. It's not the holy uh, grail. It's not the holy grail. Well, I think uh, last uh, last night when I did my speech, that was one one of the things I was trying to say and trying to make sure that people understood is that if white folks actually looked and had to center themselves in what the issue really what is, and they'd actually have to say that they did something that this was this is all on them. This shit, this is all on them. This, we are we are like surviving their atrocity you know what i mean the, all the way through so in the, with with looking at ha- having to just bring in the truth of like mexican american literature or the truth of their history same with black americans same with immigration if we were to tell the real truth and that the, and white folks couldn't be like you said the winner in all scenarios and that's the threat you know that's what's threatening you know what i mean what is it? We gotta we gotta look deeper into what exactly we're defending, or that we're trying to get. I mean, mo- the more and more I talk about this, it's like I think that I'm hoping that people are understanding why um, why may I don't know what your parents are talking about. I'm with my parents talking about having a, when we had our own black schools. You know, they were they were they reminisced the day. When blackness, uh, when we did have our own schools and we did have our, you know, we did have our um, segregation. Was- my parents are Nigerian. They grew up in Nigeria, so this is indoctrination of British educational systems that they went through. So there's all kinds of complicated things with that too. Right. So cut. Now that's an interesting idea too. So y'all, now you you were born here though, right? I was born here in the states. Okay. So um, growing up here. And so now I'm looking at, like, my parents, they grew up in St. Louis, right? So they're, they're, they're um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, the way that they see things, the way that they grew up, the, their, their perspective is from St. Louis coming to the Pacific Northwest, to Eugene, Oregon, right? So, so the story, right? So the stories I got were coming from St. Louis, you know what I mean? And the stories you got were coming from, Niger- from Nigeria. Yeah, but, like, for example, when my father first came, he came to Oklahoma, the southern parts of Oklahoma. So, like, <laughs> experience, yes, <laughs> very, very different than when my mother came to the states and she came to California, right? Mm, yeah. So, like, it's, California is like not racist. There's all kinds of stuff that's happening there, but it's a very different type of racism than that that my father experienced when he came to Oklahoma. So, there's ways in which we did we did have these conversations, right? Um, and that they problematized it too. Like, they also found that it was problematic that. Uh, the schooling that they had in Nigeria, most of it was taught in English. It wasn't taught in our language. Yes. Right? 
taught in Evo in schools all the time. Um, and why is that, right? Literally, every other country around the world, children are learning English in addition to their home language and some uh, some other language. And in the United States, kids are... We don't, no. They're just... You don't even have to take a language until you're in middle school. You don't have to take a, long, a language if you don't want to, right? Uh, but everybody else is learning English in addition to their language, and they're going through schooling in English. Right, right. Um, so, like, it dumbfounds me <laughs> so in some ways. Um, but, again, the ways in which whiteness um, it, it gets... Centered, all over the globe. That's my whole point. <laughs> it's, a, it's my whole point. It, and I don't see how white folks cannot un, cannot step back. I, I mean, I'm saying that in... It's the allegory of the cave. They can't see what they can't see. Right. Because in order to actually see that, right, like, we have to be honest, like, there's discomfort, there's annoyance, there's frustration, there's anger. Right. We didn't get the luxury of not seeing those things. Right. right? Um because of the ways in which we were raised, our parents were having these conversations, um, the interactions that we had that made made us aware. Yeah. But there's ways in which, for a lot of white individuals, this is their norm, so, like, why would they question anything? Right. right. And that's, for, that is what we are all critiquing them for. It's because of their inaction. Mm-hmm. And for many people, they're like, oh, but, like, I'm not actively... I'm not actively doing these things. Right. You're coming to the system, which then makes you actively still doing these things. Right. That this idea that, like, you know, everybody's now using the buzzword of being anti-racist, um, that, like, this idea of being an ally, you don't ever call yourself an ally. The community calls you an ally. Mm-hmm. And it's not a noun. It is a verb. Mm-hmm. So what you're actually doing to interrupt the system on a daily basis and in what ways are you using all the power with other white folks to dismantle the system? Mm-hmm. If actually doing that concertedly every single day, mm-hmm. problem. And for them, that's very, that is hard to see because there's ways in which they've had the opportunity to kind of like opt out, right? Absolutely. And there's ways in which, yes, it is exhausting. Welcome. 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 Have to deal with every day. Yeah. Um, that get the luxury to opt out and there's ways in which like this isn't my work right like this is like critical white scholars white people who are not there's not there's people of color critical white scholars honestly more white folks need to be listening to the white to the non-white critical white scholars because of their ability to see both how to see and understand what it is that white folks are doing and why they do it and discuss the impact of that on these communities in a way that when you're having conversations with just critical white scholars from a white perspective, there's two that do it really well like this, um, like other um, other POC scholars who are critical white scholars. There's two, uh, Paul Grosky and um, Tim Wise. I feel like they are able to see that from another vantage point in a way that there's some of the other white scholars, and I don't necessarily call them critical scholars because they're just whiteness study scholars. Right. Um, they're talking about whiteness, but they're not necessarily constructing it within the, the systemic kind of perspectives. Right, right. Uh, critical white scholars actually talk about the systems in which whiteness is perpetuated and how to then interrupt and dismantle that. This is the com- uh, These are the conversations I'm having with people on a regular basis, um, and getting paid to do that 
the 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 reason why I, I only get paid to do it. I don't have these conversations for free. That's what I, exactly. I was just gonna say there is a there is a wealth of knowledge out here for these white folks Google to. Google is free. What are you saying? Google is free. Well, I'm not even talking about Google. There are, there are qualified black people. There are qualified, you know, uh, to, to resource when you need, when you don't have these, when you don't have this connection. And what I'm saying is like, like when we're talking about the school system and the school, the school districts, you're, you're picking out brown faces because brown faces that you think that's a, that's, that will fix the problem. But there are actually qualified people who can come in and, and help rearrange, dismantle, take apart, put together, build a curriculum that works for black folks. And you can pay them to do that. They're qualified people. Hmm? There's qualified people and they bring them in. Do they actually want to do that work? No, that's, that's the point. That's the point. Like yeah. You're bringing in all these people to have these conversations and have been for all this time. That's what your PD is that you have at least once a month right. to talk about these issues or whenever some abhorrent thing that's either racist or sexist or xenophobic or xyz thing right you bring an expert that talks about it but right you do in an expert that talks about it you don't actually do the things that the experts tell you and many of them that do this work who are actually are not just focused on teaching you about these things and giving you the definitions many of them are geared towards actual action and change are you actually wanting to implement that so this is a funny little story and i, I think i may have told i'm going to keep telling girl i think i'm gonna have to tell a story like every single week because it's the this is how it goes like i'm doing this work and i'm trying to put the like, trying to li- help them b- build the bridge line their your intention with your impact right and the to connect the dots between you taking the, the diversity class and you actually saying something and doing something at work, you know, changing the, the actual trajectory, not just collecting the vocabulary, you know. So that's the work that I do. That's the business that I have. I mean, that's what I do. But it's, it's I, I worked for it, and I told this last week, I'm going to tell it again because I'm going to keep telling it. Everyone's going to keep telling it. I'm going to tell it every second. Y'all going to get this memorized. So I had this uh, coworker of mine who are, is very, we're, we, were, we were good friends. You know, we worked together quite a bit. And, um, I worked for the Department of Human Services, and I was always a part of the committees and always a part of creating um, diversity and inclusion work. You know, I, I brought in... your labor that nobody was paying you for? I'm not at all. And, and lost... I'm sure that I lost some, pro- some promotions because of it, right? But, so anyway, and then not only did I not get paid for it, I didn't get credit for it. Like, my name ain't on it. You know My name ain't on it. So, um, so anyway, I, at one point, um, I left, I left DHS for lots of reasons, but I left DHS, uh, two years ago and, uh, a friend of mine wrote, and I was, when I left, I was working with, um, some trauma informed care stuff. And I was also trying to get, um, um, there was a couple different things I was trying to push this thing called diversity push where I was trying to make, uh, diversity and inclusion training mandatory. And for everyone on a regular basis, like quarterly, and I was trying to make it uh, that they weighed, I was trying to lean in that they weighed the the cultural diversity and inclusion question more on the applications when you're hiring people. I was trying to just get way more. Who the hell cares if it's on the application if it's 0.5 of the decision? You know what I mean? So it's like, who cares? Whatever they say to that, it doesn't even matter. They, they can say they are a complete racist and still get the job. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it doesn't weigh anything. So anyway, 
So I was pushing that right before I left. And a friend of mine, or the person I worked with, um, she was with me doing this. And she felt, you know, pulled to the work uh, for her own personal reasons and things. And uh, she was, it would, a lot of times it would be just me and her crunching, crunching in the, in the room, you know, crunching in the lab. And uh, so I left and she had, they, after all the Black Lives Matter and all of this that's gone on, she, uh, Department of Human Services had decided, well, we need to talk about race. <laughs> like, right, right now. Um, and she sat there in the meeting, and in her head, she said, that's what me and Aisha were doing three years ago. Now, the key to that story is that she said it in her head, right? Never not once did, it, did she think that as a, as a self-proclaimed ally, that she should have said that out loud. She should have said it when I was there. She should have said it when I was gone. Yes. And in that moment that they said that, she should have said it absolutely in that moment. You know? And for her to tell me that she thought, oh, I was so frustrated with that, that right there is what we're talking about. That is the problem. You cannot be, it, it, was, it was more than performative. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I. This was, isn't like you being a silent member of a, a board committee. Right. right? Like, this requires active engagement with at every single moment you cannot choose comfortable it is for you is your discomfort is our level of rather we're safe or unsafe and the fact that white people oftentimes conflate their discomfort as being unsafe no my god you say something you're still gonna have your job and even if you were to lose your job you would still be able to easily get a job get another one just like that uh, honestly, right? And so that 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 right there is it for me. Living in a in a very white city, you know what I mean? That's where my problem lies. Cause I got people who really want to work with me, who really want to help me, who really want to give me the money. But when that when they go to their when they go to their meetings and they hear this shit going on, they don't have anything to say. They don't have anything to put on the table. They're not willing to be uncomfortable for the fight. And, you're, and if you're going to be, if, that, if you're talking about being anti-racist, you're talking about protecting the children in school, you're talking about being, I'm sorry, but you're, gonna, you're about to be uncomfortable. And, and like, and every day. But you're going to be okay, boo-boo, you're going to be okay because you have the privilege to pull out behind that we don't have. So when you want to, like, that's what I'm saying when I'm listening to this conversation and, then, and everyone's like pussyfooting around the damn, like, why Go for it. Go for the jugular. Trust me, you're going to be okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. I can't go for the jugular. <laughs> they won't let me back in the building. <laughs> if I go for the jugular, they won't let me go back in the building. But all these people who are lining up, it's like, well, I want to know what I can do. You can say something. You didn't know what you did, what you can do. Right. The meetings that I've been in in the last few weeks that are, like, white people saying that. You know what you can do. You've been known what you can do. Right. You still want to ask of labor from us yet again. Yeah. Free labor to do the work that only you can do to change a system that only changes if you want it to change. That's it. That's what I'm trying. It's only going to change if they decide to change it. And the truth of it is, is you can't stop. They don't see, oh, Lord, Lord. I, okay, look, what I think about, like, it goes back to this fort, the, no, the school district thing when I'm talking about the police. 
It's like, y'all are going, y'all are just scraping over the, the, the part that's the most obvious, that's sticking out there, that they are letting you, letting you play with. This, you need to, like, to me, I'm like. I don't know, let's take a look and see why does your school board not have anyone that has an education background on it? Why does your school board consist of a bunch of people who then end up using it as a stepping stone for their political career? Those are the types of questions that you need to be asking. Where are the where are the families? Where are the people? Communities in which they're representing. Right. That's where you have a problem. Yes, and the vote. The problem is, is that we got a lot of people, like you said, conflating. Uh, you know, like online, you want to say all these things, and but when the voting comes up, we're, the choices that we're having are, are again old white men, or old privileged white women, or old retired whoever they, who's not who's not here for what for what we're trying to do. What are you saying? People that are barely kicking. Yeah. <laughs> Girl, they got enough energy for that one board meeting, and they are not here to, have, to talk about what we're here to talk about. They're like, what time is this over, and who brought the donuts? That's all they... I mean, honestly, it's frustrating, you know. Um, it's not even... Like, I, I say it's frustrating. I, I just... I look at all the young folks, and I look at the people fighting, and I just feel like everyone's fighting the perimeter, but no one wants to go behind the curtain. You know what I mean? No one wants to go behind the curtain. And I think that's where it's at. The curtain, I mean, and I I don't know. Are you still with me? Okay. I don't know that. Um, I, I, I am, because I'm an optimist. I like what I, I like the energy right now. I also know, I also feel very deeply that. I'm going to be very disappointed <laughs> in about six months to a year. If you know what I mean? Meaning that we're just, we're just vibrating. You know, we're just vibrating. There's no actual, the, the actual changes that need to happen still are not happening. Like everyone, I mean, even where it needs to happen, when you're talking about, you know, I don't even talk about this administration, but in Congress, in the Senate, I, where, where things can actually be rewritten, taken, swapped, all, it's just not gonna happen. It's just not gonna happen. I don't. I mean, is that pessimism or is that real? I just don't. It's not gonna happen. <laughs> it's just. I don't. I just am like we're not. We're not saying the right things. We're not going for the. Right, we don't have the right position here. I'm looking at us on the battlefield. I'm like we are not in the right position. We are. We are aiming at shit that doesn't matter. You know what I mean? That is a smoke and bear scream that constantly happens, right? They get tired out on this one little minute thing, right? Yes. So the actual problem. Yes. That would require real work, and that requires real energy, and that requires longevity, and that requires not just you, but your children, your children's children, and therefore on going forward. Oh. And that's a reality that folks are not ready to sit in, right? Like, I can't even say for myself, there was ways in which when we're coming to November of this year, when this individual won November mm-hmm. of 2016, it was set in stone that he was going to win again, right? And right. ways in which all he's demonstrated, he's Hitler 2.0. Right. Right? The UN and its uselessness to ensure that something like that didn't ever happen again, and yet every kind con- oh, so many countries around the world have continued to have atrocities of this magnitude. This, the thing that's unique about here is because it's a westernized society that's supposed to be above it. So kudos to this to 45 for illuminating the 
true racism of this country, right? Mm-hmm. The true hatred of the country. Mm-hmm. And that it gets the folks who've had these perspectives for quite some time uh, a leader in which they want to fall behind. And they're still going to fall behind. Those that are very vocal and those that are silent, because those that were silent and still voted for him are the ones that ultimately aided in his victory and will continue to aid in his victory moving forward. Right. Two, that in terms of this idea of hope, at least for me, it's not something that I sit in anymore. Right. Because that is something that we can't be hopeful knowing that this thing is tied to white folks and their decisions. <sighs> oh, oh my God, girl. <laughs> it's, not my, it's, it's, like, like it's ultimately not my decision to make, so I can't be hopeful for them to choose correctly, right? Yeah. To choose a that actually Jeez. means that they care about black lives, that they care about native and indigenous lives, that they care about trans, black trans lives. Right. Um, the, way to say that I'm hopeful about that because time and time and time again before my existence and even after my existence they have demonstrated that that's not going to be the case yeah this idea it's difficult to understand that this is a lifelong intergenerational fight that I can honestly say it wasn't until this time around like literally like the last month that I've come to that understanding right like I knew that this was going to be a long fight I knew that Mm -hmm. but to this is going to be basically a forever fight. Right. And it's a fight that requires white folk if they want to, again, have things actually change to be invested for the long haul. Wow. Not for the, the Instagram worthiness, not for the tweet worthiness, not to get the accolades. Mm-hmm. Right? hmm. That was the difference between those who were doing this work back in the 60s in Freedom Summer. Mm hmm. That, like, you had white folks putting their bodies in line. You had white folks literally dying for the betterment of black lives. Right. That's the kind of work that is necessary now and forevermore. Mm hmm. Right. Forevermore. I think and that's something that they don't can process yet. Th- that's or what. That they don't act Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. They don't process, they're not processing the idea that this is a forevermore. It's just even that understanding that this has this has been what it has been. So this is going to it has to be a forevermore fight because this didn't start to yesterday. It didn't start with George Floyd. I mean, you know, it didn't it didn't start now when they when they decided to to watch and say what the hell's going on with Black Lives Matter. That's not when it started. So you know, so it's it's so thick that the conversation is like you got people. But I believe black folks, we we got a whole nother conversation to really have, you know. Um, but when it comes to dismantling the system that is in place for for uh, it's, it is absolutely a white person's position. But black folks, I think we have a different conversation to have. I think, you know, I I feel like we could we we really could be doing um, some real damage to the system by by pulling our resources together. Uh, but that's a conversation for us to figure out. Um, and I don't really know what it means for for the masses at this point in 2020, for the black masses, you know what I mean? Um, but I feel I that my, where my heart goes is that I know that we can, we as a, as a collective can re- could really create something that, that pulls all of us up through the top and there's what that's where i become idealistic and rosy glass because i, mean, I just feel like i can within within the black community right like yes. it's just, yeah, that, <laughs> these different 
conversations also need to be had, right? Yes. The Talat the Tenth. Yeah. The Talat the Talat and Tenth. The Blacks also perpetuate these notions, right? Ooh. That um, there's ways in which it, there's a lot of issues in terms of intra-Black solidarity. Yes. And that's something that I'm researching now um, yeah. to understand ways in which that could actually probably benefit um, our mental health against this fight against racism. Absolutely. Because I feel like it's not something that, it's a, it's a fight. We have our own, like this conversation is our own to have between us. You know what I mean? It's between us that we have to have this other conversation because it's, we, we're capable. I, when I keep, at, I keep saying, I don't, I don't like the idea that we keep asking permission. We don't have to ask permission of this system. You know what I mean? We can. We are. We are not an exception to this. We don't have to ask permission. So it's like for for us to be able to have uh, all the resources that we have, the knowledge that we have, being the most highly uh, decorated and highly educated group in America over the last like, three years, we have the ways to do it. And I don't understand why it's this this, this peripheral idea, like this, this parallel living, where we can really. We've done it with less, is what I'm saying. You know what I mean? We've we've created, we've created, uh, complete, and I'm and I'm referring to the Black Wall Street, the affluent Black. That we've created this whole. We've done it more than once. That wasn't even the first yes. time. And yeah. there was still hierarchies. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, like like we we can't we can't act as if though it's this like great absolution of blackness, right? Like there was still issues within it and part of it is I always say that there's there's ways in which like as an academic right like this particular path I've chosen has afforded me this great luxury that I have the space to, to be able to pause and think about these things right right working class poor folk don't have the time or the luxury to think about these issues right but how do we ensure that we're making space to have these conversations across everyone in the black community and black community not just black americans right right how do we ensure and complicate our notion of the black experience within the united states that includes african immigrants that includes caribbeans that includes afro-latinx folks right black people are everywhere in the world and a lot of this is yes inter-black dynamics are hard it is hard mm-hmm. right and we have to be able to create a space for us to sit in the ugliness of it to be able to then move forward. Right. Because people are still unable to sit in the discomfort of intra-black issues mm-hmm. makes it difficult for us to move forward. Right. right. Like, like the parallel conversations that were happening in this week alone about all of the violence that was being perpetuated against black women and trans women by black men. And you have black men in hopes that fashion really trying to denounce that. This is how you're having white people are trying to get us to fight amongst each other, yada, yada, yada. No, we have to also talk about the violence that is being perpetuated by other folks and the violence that's being perpetuated amongst ourselves. I think I have a we, very... Simultaneously. Yeah, but you know, it's it's one of those... Yes, I agree with you. and I But I think I have a protection um, around the... the black inner, the inner conversations that we need to have. Um, and I know that I've mentioned it before and I'm like, we got to do it privately to ourselves. Like we, this has got, yeah, cannot be in the, the lens of white the people. Reality is, there's a way, 
Yeah, and at the same time, still folks think as if though we can have these conversations without the white gaze. No, well, we're, I mean, we're we're complete. Yeah. We're walk, we're, we're working. We are perpetuating white supremacy in the way that we're coming to the table, too. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And the fact that folks aren't able to acknowledge that makes the spaces to have these conversations, right? Like, why? There's ways in which, like, black academics have these conversations, but even there's hierarchies within the black academics, mm-hmm. right? Because there's some who do it notions in order to be famous and, and to get the notoriety yeah. there's others that are having these conversations they really do want to come back to our spaces mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. not just people not power, to our community back to the streets and having these conversations and trying to figure out how do we make this change across all of these different spaces yes it is a conversation we need to have amongst ourselves mm-hmm. and how do we make sure to How do we make sure what? And I know that's how do we how do we do that? Yeah, it's I mean it's putting us to make the spaces for these conversations. It's well that I think uh, yeah I mean that's where we are when we come to it even in a small community like Eugene you know that doesn't even compare to Seattle where you were you know with my brother it's like. I mean, but there's hierarchy within Seattle. Like, Seattle Native Blacks didn't always fuck with out-of-town Blacks, right? And, oh. Like, there's ways in which... I mean, I talk, I talk about Africans here. I talk about Africans and Black folks here mixing together, and we can't seem to do that in a in a way that is, that is beneficial to both, you know? Seattle being... I would think Seattle was more uh, diverse, you know, and more... You know, uh, yeah, right? As a, everyone who's like, oh, no, girl, that's because you don't live there. But co- compared... There's, there's a belief, but, like, it's because people just think that because black bodies are around, that they're just automatically going to leak. <laughs> that doesn't happen if you don't have conversations across yes. difference. Yes, Like, if you don't actually tr- have those spaces where you're talking about this stuff and then collectively doing coalition building, nothing's going to change. That's I mean, right. I think there's some... Like, even within us, the black community, there's folks that, that think that, that, like, oh, yeah, there's a brother, there's a sister, so, like, that's just how it works, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't actually the complicated aspects of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I am, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, when I'm thinking about it, it's like, it's one of those things where, you know, when you go further back and you just realize, like, the in the numbers and in the resources, and all these complicated pieces, you know, um, that come together, and we hold what's hold, what I believe is holding us apart is exactly what um, what at the same time that we are that we're fighting against in all of our own our own particular ways is that the propagation of, of white supremacy and how and and I mean even the conversation around uh, around colorism, all of the idea, even the even the all of that is all different um, manifestations of white supremacy, and so it's we got we got a lot of work to do. Just we just got a lot of work. To, there's just so much trauma. Has work to do, right? Like yes. We have conversations within our own communities, right? Mm. We also have conversations with our other brown and uh, like with other POC communities, yes. right? Like yeah. 
with themselves too. And we need to have conversations with them. And once there's the white folks who want to have these conversations and get into these spaces, also being in, in coalition building with them. Right. It's all of these things need to happen simultaneously. And that's difficult to juggle. That like that's without a doubt. That is very difficult. I mean it to takes juggle. some skill. And not everybody should be in all of those spaces because not everybody wants to be Thank you. Not everybody need to be in all of those spaces. That's right. I activist friends only deal you know, on the ground, on the street stuff. I only talk with other black folk, right? That's fine. You have and that is your niche and it's working, mm-hmm. right? So there's ways in which we also a lot of policing within our own communities of saying that like folks need to be able to talk to the white man. No, I don't like that respectability politics bullshit. That's not okay. There's some people who are I want to say skilled, yes. It does take a kind of skill to be able to talk to white people mm-hmm. in a way that they understand. I know that that's a skill that I have. Mm-hmm. And I know that like that's not the only place I should be having this conversation. I know I can have this conversation with other people in different settings too. Mm-hmm. So acknowledging where our own individual powers lie to be able to move these conversations around in our different spaces. Right. We need to also be doing this work. Like, there's ways in which, like, sometimes folks think that just because we're black, like, we get this. Like, I'm not a child of African immigrants, right? Right. I myself know that this my black experience is not similar to my multi-generational black friends. I have similar-ish experiences as a result of being black bodied here, but I don't have that intergenerational trauma in that same Mm-hmm. Right. right. There's ways in which I do have to learn about what does it mean to be black here? Mm-hmm. What black experience what is the history around that that is not just something that like i just have de facto because i'm black right in america right so like there's ways in which like when we're we're calling other folks out to be doing this work too we as well need to be doing this work right and that is also hard for some folks to to take in right well i I know i don't know everything right Well, it's the, it goes right back to that idea, like you're saying, because you're black-bodied, and uh, it's the, that assumption, even by black people, that you are experiencing the, the, the generational trauma that we have experienced, and that that's in, locked in our DNA, but the truth of it is, is you have not, and you do not. And and for us, for we, we have got to start understanding the, di- the, the complex... Diaspora. Yes, the complex... The diaspora, for one, and two, that it's a beautiful thing, and for three, for meaning that we've got, we've got just as, just as many shades of brown we have as we have experience. So it's for us to, to take that for me. I, and I always say it's a, it's a, it's a white supremacist perspective. We've got to step back out of it and, uh, and doing this assumption of this lack of academic, lack of critical thinking, lack of experience and moving forward on a base of just the, the color of our skin necessarily, understanding that each of us have a story, each of us have a, a past, each of us have family, each of us have a different um, dynamic to this. And like you said, each of us have different strengths. We can't all be academia. We can't all have PhDs. Nor we can't. Should we. Nor should we. We can't and all be protesting. Stop devaluing the perspective of those who have experiences and lived experiences that vary from their own. Period. Like, Right. Um, we can't all be protesters. Yeah. Yeah. We can't all be doing that. It's and a, we protest also in different ways. That's right. 
Right. This is one form of protest, and it is necessary and needs to continue. And there's other ways that folks are protesting too. That right. Is just as, so this idea that like, you know, this like seeing both sides. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and there are some folks that like sell, especially on this end back. I'm excited. Uh, <laughs> like intellectual side that do sell out and ways in which they sell out because it's a, a defense mechanism, right? It's a protection. It's a protection thing. thing. Yeah. I get that. I I get that. Mm-hmm. I and you have to still be wary of the ways in which you doing that is coming at a cost to somebody to somebody else. Right. Right. Um, and if you're not ready to, that's fine. But make sure you're stepping aside and not getting in the way purposefully. Mm-hmm. Right. The gatekeeping that happens there. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you. Know what, Eddie? You've been like just as as educational as you would be. I I, I am like. <laughs> so happy that you were able to come and sit and have this conversation with me because I think it's it needs to happen in a real way. Everyone is still emotional and uh, I think most people... Emotions will always be there. Yeah, yeah. And emotions will always be there. I, I don't want it to... I don't... <laughs> I keep thinking of astrology in my head and I'm like, I'm thinking about Mars and I'm like, I don't want it to yeah. be where this is a transition and then people are like, oh, I'm so tired. And then it's over, you know? It's like, this is a marathon. Uh, you know, this is people's lives. This is people's actual existence on Earth, you know? And this is like on Earth, meaning like the whole globe. This is, this is, this, yeah, yeah right. So this is, yeah, it's, of course it's emotional because there it is, right? Look at, look who's affected. But the truth of it there's is no that- There's no way to do this type of work without it being emotional. Yeah. And there's ways in which we have to, continue to do this work regardless of the fact that folks are going to stop doing that work that's right? there's going to be some of us that are going to always do this work and we just have to keep keep on ways that we got to make sure that we keep pushing and cost for our own our own health and our wellness and stuff yes that's like the part of this type of work that folks uh, that we can have like a whole nother conversation about yeah um, yeah but that doing this work regardless of the fact that folks may or may not continue to do this work um, and that folks will jump on the bandwagon, jump, and folks will jump off. Look, look, we've been here, right? We've been here, and I will continue to be here. When, you know, like you said, we got to keep on keeping on. And I think that right now what I do appreciate is being able to see other uh, women, black women, you know, um, for me, and be able to just feel like I can, that, that I want to be able to reach out and, and, be able to be a resource you know what i mean like this the space yeah. the space that we need each other you know even if it's just for that self-care even if it's like hey sis some glasses looking good today i mean any of that you know what i'm saying like we need that from yeah. each other and, and your glasses do look good y'all can't see her but she yeah. look good <laughs> yeah yeah but i mean it's you know it's important though like those things are important yeah I, it makes my it, it lifts my day when another black woman sees me. You know what I mean? It's you see me. I'm just like, oh, I needed that for all of next week. You know what I mean? So being seen does something to us, and I, I know it? this is something that like I, I talk with my students all the time that uh, they talk about how our lab space uh, is a space in which they feel so seen and so full. Yes, like, to be seen in your full self. That, that is something that we don't have a luxury to get all the time and when we do get it 
the ways in which it does carry us for quite some time. And oh. I'm getting goosebumps right now thinking about like that. Right? Me like, too. Yes. And for me, that's why I do what I do. I want to ensure that folks can be seen and that they get to be seen in the way that I see them. Which yes. Is the excellence that they definitely exude, even though folks have told them otherwise. That and thank you. And thank you. I I am I'm trying to do the same. And like you said, we just gotta keep out. We just gotta keep being doing and being what we do and continue, you know, and continue. And when you're tired, I know you got a network, but know you got a network out here too, you know. Call call on me. I'm here. You know what I mean? Like like reconnected. You don't even know. That's you don't even know. But we're, <laughs> we we done. We're done. You're good. You can call call me whenever you want. Okay. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm hoping everyone was able to hear you clearly and everyone was able to really um, uh, get get what we we're trying to, to talk about here. I would love to have you on for lo- more and more and more conversations. We- I am more than, more than ready and willing to. Oh, so, thank you so much. Yeah, um, okay. Okay, so hold on one second because I don't want to give it to you before I, I end the, the live. I want to uh, finish the conversation yeah. with you real quick. Um, everyone who, who was with us today, thank you so much. This is a conversation about education. This is a conversation about the system, the education system. Uh, this was a conversation with the um, very talented, very educated, and, and lovely, and just, you know, we, we just got to spend an hour and a half with some serious quality, okay? So uh, anyway, let me know how you guys feel. Please send me some messages. Please make do how any comments that you have. Hey, Dad. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Um, And um, that will be it. All right. Peace out. Okay. That's done. Yay. Thank you so much. Yeah. That was good. I hope they could really hear you. Oops. Maybe I should stop recording. Um, Oh, my. We can stop that now. Uh, 